Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. Today's show is our very first fun one, an episode where we look at grief through the lens of a pop culture phenomenon. For our debut fun one episode, we'll talk all about my all-time favorite TV show, and I know some of yours, The Golden Girls. an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's jump in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our first fun one, Grief on the Golden Girls. If this is the very first episode of Coming Back that you're tuning into, it is so great to have you here. Coming Back is normally a three-part podcast with a personal segment or a relevant uh, grief segment, a listener question, and a deep dive interview at the end. But today we're going to switch it up a bit and focus on one topic throughout the entire episode, the Golden Girls. I am such a big believer in celebrating and honoring milestones. If you've listened to previous episodes of the show, you know that I love rituals to celebrate grief, but also rituals to to celebrate life. Um, So for every 10th episode of Coming Back, we're going to explore a fun element of grief. And this is not to say that talking about grief and loss isn't normally fun, but there are so many other mediums besides our personal stories where we can see grief represented. So for every 10th episode, we'll do an entire show on a pop culture happening that includes grief. So books, movies, music, art, news, and yes, TV are all on the table. So let's dive into today's show. I want to start off with a bit of my relationship with the Golden Girls. I was introduced to the show during a period of my life where I was grieving. And at the time, I couldn't have told you I was grieving, but I definitely was. And I find that this story of being introduced to the Golden Girls at a grieving time of your life is a running theme for a lot of people that have responded to me about this episode. So for my life, it was the summer after I just graduated high school and I was getting ready to go to college. In my plans and in my head, the summer was supposed to be the time for me and my three closest friends to to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, to go to theme parks and carnivals in our hometown one more time. And to make plans how we would stay in touch with each other despite making the big move to college. And what actually happened about three or four months prior to that was like a major falling out of my friend group. My best friend in the group had turned 18 before the rest of us. She was the oldest of the group and she had started going to dance clubs and um, drinking a bit with the guy that she was dating. And I didn't like him and I didn't trust him. And I worried that a pact that we had made earlier when she told me some of her family's negative tendencies toward alcohol that that we would always be there to look out for each other would go right out the window. And she was rebelling against her family and against my voice and the rest of our friends. And I remember being in that moment, I remember being seriously concerned for her well-being. It was probably a little dramatic because it was high school, but like this was the first incident of this kind that I had ever run up against. And of course, when I say it out loud, this comes out really smoothly. But in the moment, I was barely 17. And what is now a well thought out list of concerns and worries 
probably sounded more like, I don't trust this jerk or his friends to look out for you the way that I could, or I want you to stop hanging out with them, or you promised me we would do this together, what gives? So, of course, there was a lot of anger there, and we tried to reconcile a couple of times, but the pain of our disagreement was was too strong and and too fresh to really work through at the time. So what ended up happening is that the four of us, our larger friend group, moved through all of our end-of-year rituals like we normally did. And I remember signing their yearbooks in a very emotional fashion. And and by the time that summer came, we really didn't see each other again. Um, my best friend in the group took our other two friends with her, and they went shopping and did the carnivals and the bookstores and, and kind of all planned for college together. And I started to to feel and I knew within my spirit that I was not the preferred roommate at the college we were going to anymore. And I was cropped out of pictures that I took that got re-uploaded online without me in them. And uh, there were attempts to like reach out to each other on, on both of our sides, but they were weird and they were strange and they were all full of that good old high school angst. And I think in the back of our minds or maybe even the front of our minds, all of us knew that, that we couldn't, things couldn't really be the same again. So I adopted the grief myths that I knew. And we talked about grief myths in episode five of coming back. Um, And my top two are get busy and don't feel bad. So I took on a second job as a waitress to try and distract myself from the, the pain that I was feeling of losing these friends. And I tried to find things that would make me feel better. And in the process of leaning on another one of my friends and telling her about what I was going through, she introduced me to the Golden Girls, which was at first like a lighthearted way to zone out of my life and to distract myself from the pain that I was feeling. But as time went on, I got more absorbed into their characters and their lives. And I realized, <laughs> I'm getting chills right now, that that they were working through grief too. And they were four friends, just like I was with four friends. And and they loved each other through thick and thin. And I found myself relating to their family drama, their on-again, off-again dating relationships. And and yeah, they're, they're brushes with life and death. So through all of my illnesses and all of my griefs and all of my down points in my life, I have looked to the Golden Girls as one of many sources of comfort and inspiration in my life. The show is a reminder to me of the power of friendship, especially female friendship, and assures me that talking about our problems instead of avoiding them is the best way to see that situations come to some kind of resolution. The show makes me laugh, of course. Um, And it makes me cry. And it makes me grateful for the friendship and the wisdom of the people in my life. I feel like I know Dorothy and Rose and Blanche and Sophia and sometimes even, and I know you probably have this too, they give me advice inside my head. I I just so love that that this show has brought so much laughter and goodness and life lessons into my life. And I'm just so excited to jump into this episode with you, how seven seasons of The Golden Girls portrays death, divorce, and diagnosis. But I want to know first, if The Golden Girls has impacted your grief in a positive way, let us know in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden. We are growing fast. Uh, we've got five new members this week. Or you can also write to me through email with uh, the email address shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And I would absolutely love to hear your stories about The Golden Girls. Hey there, Shelby. Uh, my name is Tanya. I'm coming from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. 
Um, and I do have a question for you. Um, I was incredibly pumped to hear that you wanted some feedback on the Golden Girls. I simply adore that show. It's always been high on my list of favorites. Um, one of the most powerful episodes for me is the one where Dorothy's brother, Phil, passes away. In 22 minutes, that episode tackles death from all angles, death of a sibling, of a spouse, and of a child. Uh, it also takes on an issue that is incredibly ahead of its time, as with most issues <laughs> the show addresses, which is gender bending. It's funny, you never actually see Phil on the show, but through this episode, you really get an understanding of the difficulty his family had supporting his gender identity. I tear up every time Sophia finally admits why she's been so cold to Phil's wife for their entire relationship. Phil's wife supported his choice to express himself however he felt comfortable. And Sophia carried resentment for her because of it, because it was easier than being angry with her son. And when Sophia realizes that she was carrying that with her, and now she'll never have the opportunity to get resolution with Phil himself, she breaks down. She cries and says, he was my son, my little boy. And every time I saw him, I always wondered what I did, what I said. When was the day that I did whatever I did to make him the way he was? And then Phil's wife reminds Sophia that what he was was a good man. And Sophia cries in her arms and says, my baby is gone. Oh, man, the feels are real with that one. But all of that being said, I do have a question for you. A lighter grief that is used throughout the series for comedic relief is Rose's homesickness for St. Olaf. And I'm curious, do you have a favorite St. Olaf story? I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I absolutely love starting off a Golden Girl show with a St. Olaf story. So I will simply answer with this clip. This is horrible. This big daddy used to say, I'm feeling lower than the rent on a burning building. <laughs> That's funny. I used to live in a burning building. <laughs> and it was cheap. Miss <laughs> Charlie's in my first house. Uh, we'll scoff if you must, but it was warm and toasty. <laughs> I'll never forget Charlie throwing me over his shoulder and dashing across the threshold. <laughs> oh, it was a beautiful place. Three bedrooms, two baths. Then two bedrooms and one bath. <laughs> Eventually, we outgrew the place. So, yes, that is my absolute favorite St. Olaf story in the whole series. It actually shows up in the episode where Dorothy... Blanche and Rose all star in a all-chicken production of Henny Penny uh, for Dorothy's first grade school production. In regards to your thoughts on Phil's death, which happens in season six, you are absolutely right. It does encompass griefs of all kinds. I would love to listen to a piece of that episode now. It was shame that kept Aunt Katrina from loving slow Ingmar. And it ruined her life. Oh, don't let that happen to you, Sophia. Let go of the shame. So what if he was different? It's okay that you loved him. I did love him. He was my son, my little boy. But every time I saw him, I always wondered what I did, 
what I said. When was the day that I did whatever I did to make him the way he was? What he was, Sophia, was a good man. So in this episode, Sophia loses a son. Phil's partner, Angela, loses her spouse. Dorothy loses her brother. But on top of it all, we see Sophia grappling with the reality that her son lived a life that was different than the life that she dreamed of for him. She has to reconcile the hopes, dreams, and expectations she made for her son's life with the reality that he was a gender-bending cross-dresser. But what I love at the end that grief counselor Rose guides everyone to see is that ultimately Phil was, in Angela's words, a good man. And that is the truth at the heart of his life. So great observation. Thank you, Tanya. And death comes up in a lot of other episodes as well. In terms of actual deaths, we follow Blanche through the loss of her father, Big Daddy. We see Rose panic after the man she's dating literally dies in her bed, which unfortunately is a continued pattern for her that began with her husband Charlie's death. We also see all four of the girls have to plan a funeral for a nasty neighbor named Mrs. Claxton who dies during a public court hearing about a neighborhood tree removal. There's literally a point in the episode during the court hearing where Rose gets so angry with the fact that Mrs. Claxton, the mean neighbor, won't let them have their say about whether or not the tree should be removed, that she points at her and says, if you can't let us have your say, you should just drop dead. And she does. There's a book that my roommate actually gifted to me called Golden Girls Forever, an unauthorized look behind the lanai. This is by Jim Colucci, and it has all the behind the scenes from every single episode of the Golden Girls that's ever been made. And Kathy Spear, who's actually one of the producers of the show, commented for this specific episode that it's a pretty standard plot line for sitcoms to see how characters react when the meanest person in the neighborhood dies. There's also a running theme of anticipatory death in the show, and we talked about this on a previous episode. I believe it was episode three of coming back. But it's the idea of grieving somebody before they're actually dead or anticipating their death. Sophia's death is talked about most often on the show because she's the oldest of the four Golden Girls. In season one, episode 10, Sophia experiences symptoms of a heart attack after a party the girls host at their house. And the girls call the paramedics, but because of a windy storm and a lot of trees down, the paramedics can't get through to the house for a while. So Dorothy, Rose, and Blanche are left to deal with a dying woman in the middle of their living room for the remainder of the episode. This is the first time in the entire series that we see Dorothy really face the possibility of her mother's death. Oh, Blanche, what if she dies? She's a tough lady, Dorothy. If anyone's a survivor, she is. If she dies, I'll be an orphan. Can you believe it? I'm over 50 years old and I'll still feel like an orphan. I know. Oh, doesn't matter. You'll lose a parent. You might as well be six. It's scary. And it pushes you right up to the head of the line. I know. Oh, God, I don't know what I'll do. I love that lady so much. 
She's my family. We're your family too, Dorothy. And you remember that. We might not be blood, but we're here. Oh, God, I miss her already. What I love about this exchange between Dorothy and Blanche is that Dorothy acknowledges the fact that losing a parent can make anyone feel like an orphan, really vulnerable, and it can bring up feelings of being abandoned or being left behind. Blanche steps in in this conversation and reminds Dorothy by saying, I know, that she's had similar experiences in her own life. She has already lost her mother, which we'll learn and see in later episodes. But she reminds Dorothy that she and Rose, her other family, are there to support her should Sophia die. This episode is also the first time that Sophia describes going to heaven and meeting Sal, her deceased husband. This comes up several times in the series, and we eventually get to see one of her conversations with a heavenly version of Sal in one of my favorite episodes in season five. Sophia is struggling with losing her memory, and so Dorothy and Sophia take a trip to Brooklyn to their old apartment to kind of jog her brain. And while she's there, Sal drops in to give her a little encouragement. Sal! What the hell are you doing here? Hey, relax. I'm not really here. I'm just a Fig Newton of your imagination. (laughs) Oh, Sal, it's been so long, I forgot how much you used to like Norm Crosby. So, how are things? How are things? Sal, talk to me. How are you? What's new? What's heaven like? You know, everyone thinks heaven is right above. Actually, it's a little more to the left. What's God like? Nice. You should see his car. (laughs) Oh, before I forget, Gladys says hello. You fooling around with Gladys? Of course not. Gladys is going out with Charlemagne. (laughs) Sophia, I see from upstairs you kind of lost your spunk. What's the matter? I'm slipping, Sal, and it's frightening. I'm even forgetting you, forgetting the good old days. And what, I'm supposed to feel sorry for you? That'd be a start. (laughs) Nah, the Sophia I know is a survivor. That's why we got married. You beat out a lot of other women. Oh, yeah, there was a hell of a long line waiting to get to you, Sal. (laughs) What's the name of that girl with the warts? (laughs) You see, some things you do remember. Yeah, but only some things. I'm 83, Sal. I don't have the energy for this. You have lost your spunk. You know, maybe I don't find you so attractive anymore. What? You're not the same Sophia. I wonder how Gladys and Charlemagne are doing. (laughs) Well, sure, the guy rewrote history, but can he juggle? Salvador Petrillo, you miserable bachigaloop. If you so much as look at another ghost... See, there's the spunk. It's still there, but use it for yourself, not on me. You think I can be okay? If I didn't, would I have made the trip? I miss you, Sally. Hey, I'm always with you. And when the time's right, see you at my place. What's interesting about the behind the scenes of the Golden Girls is that the woman who plays Sophia's character, Estelle Getty, was in reality absolutely petrified of death. Playing Sophia's character really got to her sometimes, and some of the other girls describe it being difficult for her to do so many episodes focused around her character's mortality. Betty White actually wrote in her book, If You Ask Me, Estelle Getty was so afraid of dying that the writers on The Golden Girls couldn't put a dead joke in the script, and death and funeral scenes were definitely not her favorite. 
Something that Golden Girls fans have picked up on and latched onto in recent years is the eerie foretelling question that Rose asks in season four. Blanche had just graciously sacrificed her work bonus to ensure that Lillian, one of Sophia's friends, could be taken care of in a nearby nursing home, and the girls are reveling in their brilliance and the fact that Sophia's friend won't go neglected in a shoddy, underfunded home. Well, then that's that. Lillian's problems are solved. Isn't this terrific? Terrific? Ma, this is wonderful. I mean, this is a real happy ending. So, how come I don't feel all that happy? I don't know. Is it because we know that Lillian's just plain lucky that a lot of old people do slip through the cracks and are forgotten? <sighs> and maybe it may not be too long until we are elderly ourselves. I know, girls. Let's make a pact that we'll always take care of each other, that we'll never desert each other no matter what. You can count on me. But you think it's going to be that easy getting rid of me, Rose? That was rhetorical, Rose. (laughs) Oh, but what a comforting thought, knowing you'll never be alone. And listen, what the hell if we do have to go to a nursing home? Let's all go together. But what happens when there's only one of us left? Don't worry, I can take care of myself. Of course, what's freaky-deaky about this question, which was posed in 1989, almost 30 years ago, is that Rose's character, Betty White, is the only living golden girl remaining. Estelle Getty, who played Sophia and was the most vocal about her fear of death and dying, and the second youngest of all the Golden Girls in real life, was the first to die in 2008. B. Arthur, who played Dorothy, died the year after in 2009, and Rue McClanahan, who played Blanche, died a year after that in 2010. It will be extremely sad and tragic when Betty White dies, and there have actually been a couple of Twitter hoaxes regarding her death. She shows up as trending all of a sudden on social media, and people clutch their hearts thinking that she's finally kicked the bucket. Most recently, in just May of this year, 2017, Betty White trended on Twitter, but not because she died. She was actually trending because she broke up with her boyfriend of two months. So the tweets of relief from her fans and fellow Golden Girls lovers were absolutely hilarious to watch this year, and they really spoke to the lasting impact of her presence on the Golden Girls. If you're listening, I love you, Betty. All right, so I think that's enough talk about death for this episode. I want to move on to the topic of divorce on the Golden Girls. And this is actually the topic where I got the most questions for this episode. Dominique, who runs the Instagram page, the.goldengirlsfan, says... One topic I'd like to see discussed on the Golden Girls podcast is the topic of divorce slash separation. Dorothy's Bornack may have divorced her husband, Stan, and felt an emotional hurt, but I loved how, despite all that, she did not let him stop being a father to their children. Although their children were grown in the series, they still maintained a healthy relationship co-parenting, although sometimes Stan tried a few times to lay the moves on Dorothy, lol. With that being said, the Zbornak children never grew up to hate their parents, despite the divorce. Yes, Dominique, thank you. I love this observation. We find out Dorothy and Stan are divorced in the pilot episode, the very first episode of The Golden Girls. And in the entire second episode, which 
is where we see Dorothy's daughter Kate get married, we watch Dorothy try to cope with the fact that she has to closely interact with Stan, the man who just left her after 38 years of marriage. And at one point during the reception, Sophia finds Dorothy in her room and gives her some sage advice about dealing with her anger. What are you doing? I want to be by myself for a while. It's time to throw rice at the kids. I don't think I can go back out there. You're acting like a jerk. Thanks, Ma. Thanks. That really makes me feel a lot better. Don't get smart with your mother. Listen, Dorothy, I love you dearly, but you're not the first woman to be dumped by her husband. Oh, Ma, Ma, it's not what he did. I mean, I've, I've learned to live with that. It's the way he did it. The least he could have done was tell me to my face. If you're so angry with him, tell him. You don't have to kill him. I know, but I want to. <laughs> Dorothy, anger is a lot like a piece of shredded wheat caught under your dentures. <laughs> if you leave it there, you get a blister and you gotta eat jello all week. <laughs> if you get rid of it, the sore heals and you feel better. Anger is like a piece of shredded wheat. You want poetry? You listen to Neil Diamond. You want good advice? You listen to your mother. Maybe you're right. Of course I'm right. You think I got this old by being stupid? You know, you're the greatest mother in the world. Tell me something I don't know. I think the Golden Girls does a wonderful job of depicting the longevity of divorce. Dorothy and Stan's relationship isn't just a focus of the first couple of episodes or of the first season. It's literally a recurring point of conversation and interaction in the show. If Stan isn't physically present in an episode, Dorothy or Sophia is telling a story about him or one of the girls speaks with him on the phone. And this is very aligned with how divorce can play out in our real lives. It's very different from death where the people we divorce or break up with are still very much alive. So their paths are still crisscrossing with ours. And you're right, Dominique, that Kate and Michael, Dorothy and Stan's children, don't seem overly resentful of their parents' divorce in the show. In fact, when Kate's husband cheats on her in season two and Dorothy urges her to separate from him, not to make the same mistake she did... Kate does the opposite and insists on working things out. And when Michael's wife kicks him out in season five, he leans on his father's stand while Dorothy gives him tough love to get his job back and to get back on his feet. There are a couple of episodes where Dorothy contemplates getting back together with Stan. And that's where another listener question comes in. Elaine from Illinois says, Dorothy lets Stan back into her life over and over, and usually it turns out in emotional or financial turmoil for her. In the process of coming back, how can we tell if it's healthy or unhealthy to let people back into our lives when they've been absent for some time, or or if they left on bad terms? I definitely think we should look to Dorothy for advice on this one. So I'm going to give you a clip from the final episode in the entire series where Dorothy is headed to church to be married. The limo that picks her up at the house is surprisingly driven by none other than Stan, who reveals his identity to Dorothy when he takes the long way to the church service. Stanley, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind? You're ruining the biggest step of my life. You're getting married, and you couldn't send an invitation to Stanley's born at the man who gave you his name. I'm sorry. The list was alphabetical. 
the Zionists aren't speaking to me either. Stanley, what do you want from me? I want to show you something. Dorothy, you see this hair? It is the only one on my forehead. The other traitors receded years ago, but this proud and loyal sprout clings desperately. It is unrelenting. It is true. What about it? Dorothy, it is this hair that I hate more than all the others. It mocks me. You're psychotic. Because I'm bald? Because you're kidnapping me. I'm not kidnapping you. I'm taking you to church in style. You are? This is my gift to you. I just wanted a minute alone with you to give my blessings, to show I care. Don't you see? I am that hair. And you're my big, crazy, bald skull. All right, Stanley. The truth. Things have been going so well with Lucas, I didn't want to deal with you. But as Freud said, our beds are crowded. When I sleep with Lucas, I'm not alone. There's this phantom of you there, and he has the haunts of his prior relationships, and, well, I... Well, I can't pretend you're not a part of me. So what are you saying? You slept with this guy? <laughs> Stanley, you're missing my point. We named it! <laughs> what I'm saying is... Thank you. Stanley, for the first time in a long while, you're really acting like a man. I love you, Dorothy. I've always loved you. And I love you, Stanley. Now drive. answer your question, Elaine, I think it's really important to note on what Dorothy was saying here. The people we date and love are always a part of us. And like Stan tried to say in his terrible receding hairline metaphor, sometimes people are a stubborn, insistent part of our lives. Sometimes like in Dorothy and Stan's relationship, you have to quote unquote, try on what works best for you to see if and how you fit into each other's lives again. Unless the relationship was violent or abusive, you can't really stamp it with a label of healthy or unhealthy until you've tried on some of your options. And we see throughout the series that Dorothy and Stan hated each other, antagonized each other. They supported each other through a surgery that Sophia had to get. They owned real estate together. They almost got married again. They went through couples therapy together and dealt with Stan's decision to remarry several times. And in one episode, they both had to face the decision that Stan made to sleep with Dorothy's sister. In that episode, which actually happens near the beginning of the last season of The Golden Girls, Dorothy finally concludes that her relationship with Stan works best when they're just plain divorced. So I think The Golden Girls can teach us a lot here about maintaining relationships over time with people who may not fit in one role, like a romantic partnership, but they might do well in other roles in our lives. 
Other relationship breaking up stories were played through Sophia, uh, especially a couple of cases of arranged marriages in her youth that didn't work out. The Golden Girls is notorious for not keeping a Bible or like a basic character history on file for the show, though. So dates and timelines with her previous marriages are always really foggy. There are a few episodes, though, where Sophia mentions making amends to former fiancés or the men that she was promised to or left at the altar, namely Augustine Bagatelli in the bowling episode, Guido Spirelli when Dorothy goes out of town, and uh, Giuseppe Mangiacavalla, which has an entire episode where all of the Golden Girls attend his daughter-in-law's wedding. In Blanche's life, she saw her daughter and son-in-law work through what she called marital troubles in season one while her grandson David spent some time at the house and learned a lot of lessons about what love looks like. And in Rose's life, she didn't really have too much contact with divorce in her immediate family, but she proved herself to be a really positive and hilarious support through Dorothy's life in the house. I didn't uh, uh, catch your name. I'm Rose Nyland, your new roomie. <laughs> Blanche has told me all about you. Sorry your husband dumped you. <laughs> you can borrow my bubble bath anytime you want. That'll help ease the lonely nights. Thank you. <laughs> so with that, diagnosis is the last grief that I'll touch on in the show. The first one that immediately jumps to mind is the episode where Rose receives news that blood she was given during a surgery may have contained HIV antibodies. The entire episode, called 72 Hours, is centralized around her waiting 72 hours to receive the results of her blood test. And I love what Jim Colucci says about this in his book, Golden Girls Forever, which I have open in front of me right now. He actually got access to an interview with one of the editors of the Golden Girls, uh, Peter Bett. And he said, while I was working on the Golden Girls, we found out my partner Dean was HIV positive. Estelle Getty, Sophia's character, was the first person I told. Her nephew was HIV positive, so she and I now had a connection. This was a new and scary world that we both had to face. News stories would show the hospital room no one would go into except in full hazmat suits. For six months, a family member who works in infectious diseases wouldn't let me go near his children because they didn't yet know how HIV is spread. It was a lot to go through, and when I would get to work and be carrying around all this baggage, Rue McClanahan, Blanche's character, Betty, Rose's character, and Estelle, Sophia's character, and occasionally B. Arthur, who's Dorothy's character, were friends that I could talk to. It was really the episode 72 Hours that for me showed what TV can do and how far a sitcom can reach. I hadn't gone to the taping of the episode, but I was set to edit it. I hadn't read the script and had no idea what it was about or what was coming. This was in early 1990, a time when there was still so much shame about the disease. Having grown up in Louisiana, I was already feeling shame about being gay. My partner was dying, and now I was ashamed about that too, and feeling on some level like I deserved this. So here I was, editing away, watching the episode for the first time, and I got to the point where there's an argument between Rose and Blanche about waiting for her test results. I looked up at the screen in time for Blanche to say, AIDS is not a bad person's disease, Rose. It is not God punishing people for their sins. My heart stopped. All of a sudden, unexpectedly, here was this woman on a sitcom I was cutting, talking about what I was feeling. And this episode has always been kind of amazing to me. Watching it now, I don't really get the impact that I would have if I had watched it in the late 80s, early 90s, when the AIDS epidemic was just going around. And The Golden Girls was actually really pioneer in that it was one of the first sitcoms to discuss the AIDS epidemic. And I personally love this episode because it's all about destigmatizing AIDS and sex. It's 
It's worth noting, too, that because of the industry that they were in and because of the previous backgrounds in theater and just in their lives that they had made, especially uh, Estelle Getty's character, especially Sophia, a lot of the the people on the show, not just the Golden Girls, had lost people they loved to AIDS. And I think my favorite part of the show is when Blanche takes an opportunity to share her own experience waiting for test results with Rose. They hash through that reality that AIDS is not a bad person's disease and that simply having sex or having a surgery can put you at risk for getting it. You don't have to be gay and that yes, it is horribly agonizing to wait for what could be life-changing news. Hi, Rose. What's going on? Oh, I'm just sitting here kicking myself for not taking care of my gallbladder and for going to that hospital for the operation and for letting them give me blood without asking first. Oh, excuse me, are you sure this isn't going to kill me one day? Now, now, Rose, take it easy. Why does everyone keep saying that? I don't feel like taking it easy. I might have AIDS, and it scares the hell out of me. And yet every time I open my mouth to talk about it, somebody says, there, there, Rose, take it easy. I'm sorry, honey. Why me, Blanche? I'm tired of pretending I feel okay so you won't say take it easy. And I'm tired of you saying take it easy because you're afraid I'm going to fall apart. Damn it, why is this happening to me? I mean, this isn't supposed to happen to people like me. You must have gone to bed with hundreds of men. <laughs> Hey, wait a minute. Are you saying this should be me and not you? No, no, I'm just saying that I am a good person. <laughs> Hell, I'm a goody two-shoes. AIDS is not a bad person's disease, Rose. It is not God punishing people for their sins. You're right, Blanche. Well, you're damn straight I'm right. I'm sorry I yelled at you. Oh, don't apologize. I mean, this is what I want. I... Oh, God, this waiting is driving me crazy. Blanche, when you were tested, how did you make it through? Just kept it to myself and acted like a real bitch to everybody else. <laughs> no wonder we never knew. We got another observation on diagnosis from another episode that was centered around Rose's life. Rebecca says, Rose helps her sister Lily cope with being blind, but part of that is telling Lily that she needs to learn how to help herself and not just ask Rose to do everything for her. I love that the Golden Girls knew how to set healthy limits without making the people in their lives feel abandoned or like their problems didn't matter. Yes, I so agree with this observation, and I remember this episode very clearly. In this episode, Lily, who is Rose's sister, has gone blind over time. And so she's learning to relive her life as a blind person as, to, as opposed to a sighted person. And there comes a point in the episode where Lily asks Rose to come back to Chicago to live with her to help her cope because she can't do it by herself. And when Rose says, I'll support you going to school, I would support you with any other resources, but I will not move with you. I am happy here. Lily actually leaves angrily and they don't talk for a while. And then at the very end of the episode, we see Rose go to visit Lily in Chicago. She flies there on a plane and Lily greets her with a an assistance dog and and very good directions all the way to the baggage pickup and to the car. 
And in her own way, she said, thank you for not coddling me because I needed to see there was a way that I could do this myself. And I think that's a that's a running theme throughout the show with diagnosis is that the girls are are people who try to do the best that they can with any given situation, especially when it's an illness or diagnosis of somebody they love, but they do have to admit after a while. And in certain circumstances, they have to take more of a hands-off or a distant, loving from a distance approach. There's another episode about diagnosis that I love because it's a grief that a lot of women experience. And The Golden Girls was one of the very first TV shows to touch on it. It's actually menopause. It's an episode about menopause. And the person that it happens to is the the woman on the show who takes the most pride in her sexuality, which is Blanche. And at the very beginning of the episode, because of her fluctuations in hormones, Blanche takes a pregnancy test thinking maybe she's pregnant. She's missed a couple of periods. But we find out later that her doctor has told her that she's going through menopause and it absolutely ruins her life. Blanche, Blanche, what happened? Blanche, Blanche, she's in there. <laughs> really, Columbo? Yes. Blanche, come on. What did the doctor say? Oh, the worst. It's the worst thing ever. Oh, no, honey. It's not. It's okay. The baby's going to be fine. Sweetheart, you'll have amniocentesis and the baby will be just fine. Oh, we'll help you. You yeah. won't have to do it alone. The baby will have three oh, mothers. it'll be such fun, honey. We, we can take turns feeding him. We can take turns waking up with him. And I can do the carpools for school because my hours are And flexible. I can help him with his homework because I'm a teacher. And then we can send him <laughs> to the University of Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota. Are you crazy, Rose? This kid is going to Harvard. Oh, Dorothy, those Ivy League schools are so snotty with those preppy people. In Minnesota, he'll get a nice mix. Of cattle, maybe. No, this boy goes to Harvard. Well, who says you decide? We'll take a vote. Look, nobody is going to vote for Minnesota over Harvard, Rose. Oh, really? <laughs> He's not going anywhere. It's a girl? No, girl, no boy. I'm not pregnant. It's worse. It's it's much worse. Blanche, what is it? My life is over. Oh, Blanche, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for thinking all those bad things about you when I thought you were pregnant. Like what a slut you were for having all those men. That thing's only a tramp would do. But now that you're dying, I mean, please forgive me, Blanche. I didn't know, please. I am not dying, Rose, but I might as well be. It's menopause. Well, I wish I could die because as far as I'm concerned, this is the end of my life. So what we're seeing here with Blanche's diagnosis of going through menopause is not only the reality, as a therapist says later in the episode, that she can no longer bear children, but her alignment with her womanhood and her sexuality and her ability to be attractive to the opposite sex. And this is interesting because when diagnosis crops up in our own lives, no matter big or small, visible or invisible, whether it's external or internally seen by others, it, it changes how we see ourselves and the traits that we carry ourselves with in the world. Other instances of diagnosis in the show include Dorothy's two-episode quest to find a name for her mysterious symptoms, eventually landing on chronic fatigue syndrome, which actually mirrored producer Susan Harris's life story. 
Rose's addiction to painkillers, which required her to admit herself to a rehabilitation clinic, and Sophia's friend Alvin's diagnosis of Alzheimer's, which sent him to New York for special treatment. To close the show today, I want to leave you with three big lessons the Golden Girls taught me about grief. 1. Death is inevitable for all of us, but that doesn't mean we have to go through it alone. 2. Former partners are never completely out of our lives, but setting healthy boundaries helps keep our relationships and our hearts in check. And three, our bodies can change who we think we are, but with time, support, and participation in all of our diagnoses, we can reframe how we see our conditions. I have so enjoyed talking about grief on the Golden Girls with you today. Thank you to everyone who submitted a question for the show. I can't wait to do another fun one episode in 10 weeks and episode 20. If you have commentary for this show on grief on the Golden Girls, or if you have an idea of what I should do for the next fun one episode, leave me a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And I can't let you go today without sharing my all-time favorite scene from The Golden Girls. Jean thinks she's in love with Rose. (laughs) Ma, come on, it's not funny. The hell it's not. Jean in love with little Miss Muffet. Come on! (laughs) What is going on? Nothing. Nothing. Come on now, I heard you laughing. What's so funny? For starters, Jean is a lesbian. (laughs) What's funny about that? You aren't surprised? Of course not. I mean, I've never known any personally, but isn't Danny Thomas one? Not Lebanese, Blanche. Lesbian. 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 But isn't that where one woman and another... We already know what it means. But Jean's a very attractive woman. She could have any man she wants. She doesn't want them. Well, why not? Man has so much more to offer, you know what I mean, Doug? Yeah, I found that out when Mark Perper was running for class president in the third grade. Why, what does that have to do with anything? Well, his campaign slogan was, vote for me and I'll show you my (laughs) wee-wee. He won by a landslide. never understand what Jean doesn't see in the opposite sex, but hey, if that's what makes her happy, that's fine by me. There's one other thing. Jean thinks she's in love with Rose. Rose? (laughs) Jean has the hearts for Rose? (laughs) I don't believe it. I do not believe it. I was pretty surprised myself. Well, I'll bet. To think Jean would prefer Rose over me? That's ridiculous. Now you tell me the truth. If you had to pick between me and Rose, who would you pick? Who? Blanche, pull yourself together. Oh, I'm sorry. Does Rose know 
No. Oh, good. I don't think you ought to tell her. After all, she's not as worldly and sophisticated about these things as I am. <laughs> Absolutely. If she finds out Danny Thomas is a lesbian, it'll break her heart. <laughs> That's all for this episode of Coming Back. Again, a huge thank you to all of you who submitted questions and observations for the show. You helped all of us see the Golden Girls in a new light through the lens of grief. Thank you for being a friend. Please subscribe and tell a friend about this episode of Coming Back. Each of my episodes contains stories and resources for life after loss, and you never know what somebody you love is going through, or if they just watch the Golden Girls. Thank you always, always, always to the amazing, talented Addie Goldstein for composing our theme music. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you. I so adored our fun trip to Miami and listening to my favorite girls with you. I hope all of you get a big old slice of cheesecake this week. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. 